You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Underwear, undershirts, socks, polos, they're engineered to be better than what you're wearing now. For 20% off your order, visit MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com and use promo code HISTORY. Presidential hands grab sterling silver. They husk a cylindrical object out of its maroon leather case. Up it goes, twinkling in the light. cracked open, split in half, and placed on the table. The presidential eye roams the room, peering at the figures assembled, then at the various potions at his disposal. What shall it be? Three parts gin, one vermouth, a little fruit juice, a touch of rum, a little Benedictine herbal liquor to puzzle them, a drop of Pernod? Mm, did that last week. A moment more, then the decision is made. Cool liquid through the Hawthorn strainer. And evenly into the glass. And passed on to the lucky recipient of Franklin Roosevelt's presidential martini. Legendary, mysterious, maybe not the strongest, but different every time. But this meeting upstairs at the White House, July 11th, 1944, was about more than just getting zoozled. It was serious talk. The events of this meeting would change history. Present were Rob Hannigan, chair of the Democratic National Committee, also Ed Pauley, the treasurer of the Democratic Party, and Ed Flynn, Brock's Democratic leader, and several other bigwigs. Ed Pauley was an oil man who had accepted the job of treasurer, but he functioned as more than just a treasurer. He also had political organization responsibilities. He owned oil fields, numerous businesses, parts of hotels, had a seat at the 21 Club in New York City. He was the money man of the Democratic Party at this time. The meeting was called by Roosevelt himself, and it was more or less a command performance, Ed Pauley said in an oral history later. The president that evening was most jovial. We had cocktails with him in the upstairs oval room, and he made several of his famous and delicious martinis. We had some very frivolous conversation. 
President Roosevelt was a charming gentleman, and his approach to every problem or incident was bound to reflect a sense of humor, which only he could really put forward. The discussion finally came around to the Vice Presidency of the United States. FDR, sensing the consensus in the room, said, Won't you take Wallace? Henry Wallace was the current vice president and FDR's former secretary of agriculture, a big proponent of the New Deal and somebody that you might say was more on the liberal side of politics. In 1940, FDR had insisted that Henry Wallace be on the ticket. In fact, to the point that if Henry Wallace wasn't on the ticket, FDR wasn't going to run for a third term, or so he said. And initially, in the vice presidency, Henry Wallace had been called the assistant president was the darling, but something had definitely changed four years later. Still, FDR was asking, won't you take Wallace? Ed Pauley says, I cited some reasons why we wouldn't. It wouldn't be good because of all the people in the Democratic Party that have been selected to raise money. Wallace drew the least crowd. The people in leadership didn't want him. They felt there were better people. With the country now at war, starting to wrap up the Eastern Front, Wallace had criticized Churchill, ridiculing British imperialism. And all this talk about the common man in a big speech, this century should be the century of the common man. All well and good in the basic sense, but he equated what big companies were doing to the willpower of the Germans. Bosses, bigwigs, high rollers weren't happy. Names came up. What about Jimmy Burns? Now, Jimmy Burns is a figure that's kind of been lost to history, but at this time in 1944, he was basically running the war effort. A lot of people were calling him, what they used to call Wallace, the assistant president. FDR merely said, okay, but uh, clear it with Sidney. Sidney Sidney Hillman was a significant labor leader, and Hillman didn't like Burns. Uh, Burns was from South Carolina. He was anti-labor. He would turn out to be a segregationist governor of South Carolina later. And so FDR didn't say no, but made this comment, which torpedoed the whole idea. What about Alban Barkley? At the mention of the name, FDR seemed disinterested. Barkley had crossed him on packing the Supreme Court. What about Sam Rayburn? No, the party doesn't like him in Texas. The nominee has to carry his home state. At this point, Bob Hannigan, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, who was from Missouri, suggested the senator from his state, Harry Truman. FDR's first reaction was that he didn't know him, never had met him. And then, as Pauly recalls, he asked, how old is he? And then something happens as they try to verify Truman's age. He's 59 at this point. But FDR, as far as he knows, Truman could be as old as 95. And it's obviously a concern. One of the other people at the party gets the congressional directory in order to answer the question. And as he comes back into the room with it, Ed Pauley tells him, give that to me. And he holds the book with his finger on the page for Harry Truman and waits as it was bound to do. The conversation shifted to other things. Does labor like him? Is he going to pull his home state of Missouri? Yes. Yes. Those things will be fine. 
while Ed Pauley's holding his finger in the congressional directory. FDR goes around the room and says, You boys seem to want Truman. Is that right, Bob? Yes. Is that right, Ed? Yes. My little finger slipped out of the book, Ed Pauley says, and I just put it on the shelf. If we had opened up the congressional directory, it would have opened up objections, not just because of the age. This guy was a county judge, not the things the city fight Roosevelt liked. Roosevelt wouldn't have taken Truman if we had opened up that congressional directory. And so in this room, perhaps, the second highest office in the land is decided. Or so it seemed. This is a story of political manipulation, plain and simple. The back room clang of martini glasses, secret words and notes. Frank looks in the eye and lies told. It's not what we want. It's no kind of democracy. The most vote wins, you know. Yet in this story, a very old but yet new story, it might be right to ask, who's doing the manipulating? Certainly, the DNC is trying to pluck the VP nomination away from the thousands of party workers and convention delegates. There's going to be a counter-manipulation in our story, none on the up-and-up, that we'll discuss. And there's also manipulation of the recipient of the VP nomination, who, at this point, has no idea that he's being talked about over martinis, doesn't have the faintest idea. There was a little attempt to manipulate Roosevelt there by not giving him the information at the time he asked for it, waiting for the subject to pass. And, of course, there's the president, FDR. And he's just manipulating everybody. He absolutely does. He meets with Henry Wallace, his current VP, and definitely his choice in 1940, and the darling now of progressives, who Roosevelt does not want to disappoint and tells him that he'd love to have him as VP again. <laughs> Wallace has worked with FDR a while, though. He says, that's great, Mr. President, but can I get a statement uh, from you? And, uh, you know, in writing, he wants a statement. And Roosevelt writes one for him, and it says, If I was a delegate to the 1944 convention, I'd vote for Henry Wallace. But he also makes sure that his assistant president helping him to run the war, South Carolina politician Jimmy Burns, he says to him to his face that he's the choice. He sees that rumors are spread that Albin Barkley, the majority leader in the Senate, is also being considered for this nomination, possibly has it. FDR wants no one disappointed. Everyone has to work for the war effort in 1944, and for the party. And then there is this martini meeting with the bigwigs. And isn't that where the knife should have been put in Wallace's back? And even the manipulators themselves can't get purchase exactly. When his guests say that they should go with Truman on the 1944 vice presidential ticket, Roosevelt goes back to each one. And he says, boys, I guess it's Truman. And sources disagree exactly what he said. He was not exactly committal. Ed Pauley said later, he was ducking the whole thing. 
But initially for Ed Pauly, it was okay because they had his commitment and they were going to get something in writing from FDR that he'd be supporting Truman. As the convention begins, it's in Chicago in 1944. The Republicans have just had their convention in Chicago and they've attacked a fourth term idea. FDR, under the cloak of war in 1944, he's traveling around the country in a train and is not revealing where he is. He has the ability, this is back in 1944, it's kind of nifty, to make this huge convention speech. It's going to be a little eerie for the delegates because there's no one at the speaker's podium except for this light. And FDR speaks by radio from his train car. From, and you thought that Dick Cheney made this one up, an undisclosed location. It turns out it's San Diego. He's meeting with generals there about the Pacific War. Unbeknownst to the delegates that are starting to arrive, unbeknownst to Jimmy Burns, Wallace, and all the other contenders, Roosevelt's train stops in Chicago on the way to San Diego. And he meets with Hannigan and Ed Pauley. And they use this opportunity to get the note that they want. Mr. President, we need your commitment in writing so we can show this to people so they know they should be supporting Truman. FDR has not spoken publicly about the VP choice. He said he's going to leave it up to the convention. So he says, OK, I'll write you one. Bob, you have written me about Harry Truman. I should, of course, be glad to run with him. Now, that's the note that Hannigan and Pauly wanted. But actually, this is what the note says. Bob, you have written to me about Harry Truman and Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. I should, of course, be glad to run with either of them. What? Where did Douglas come up? Even the DNC was not in complete control here. As they read the note, Pauly's telling Hannigan, Stop that train! Catch the train! The train is pulled away. The DNC, Hannigan, and company are not able to immediately release the note to the press. There are, you know, Douglas is the Supreme Court justice, has no idea he's even being considered by the president. Nobody's been talking about that, and he's hiking in the woods. But he does have supporters at the convention. One of the things Pauly says is if they put out this note, they're going to have an effort from Douglas people, of which there were several hundred at the convention, while they're trying to get Truman picked. The president doesn't know that they're not going to use the note, and perhaps it's true that FDR wanted to start a little Douglas excitement. And of course, Wallace, he has a note too. But when one examines it closely, the note says, if I were a delegate. And Franklin Roosevelt is not a delegate at the 1944 convention. Nobody has anything from FDR, really. For the office... President of these United States, one who is endowed with the intellectual boldness of Thomas Jefferson, the indomitable courage of Andrew Jackson. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. 30,000 hot dogs. There's a number I keep focusing on to understand a 1944 political convention. I mean, this is one of the last to have no TV cameras at all. That's a radio hookup. No TV cameras. 30,000 hot dogs for those hungry delegates that are going to spend a few days here. 96,000 beers. And also 120,000 soft drinks. The Chicago Stadium, usually home to sporting events, is ready. And you think about the masses of politicos in this building with cigars and the smoke trapped in the stale air of this arena. With FDR's laid plans, everybody's ready. Jimmy Burns, he gets a huge hotel suite in the hotel, uh, in the, one of the best hotels. He believes he's going to be the VP candidate. So he is going to have to take meetings and needs it. He actually telephones his good friend, the senator from Missouri, Harry S. Truman, informs him that FDR has said that he's the choice. And would Harry Truman make his nominating speech? And Truman, of course, accepts. Albin Barkley comes thinking that he has an outside chance. He's going to give the nomination speech for FDR, and he has an outside chance to get the VP slot. So he's preparing a really good speech. Henry Wallace, well, he's got the letter from FDR. He's the only one who has a written statement from FDR of any kind of support. And he releases it to the press prior to the convention, making his renomination to VP seem easy. And the press is very confused by this because when they're talking to the big politicals, they're saying, oh, no, no, it's not going to be Wallace anymore. The Los Angeles Times says Wallace is out. The Washington Post says the nomination is his. And there's all this buzz at the convention. And inside the convention hall, you got flags draped down, each state with the placard, bringing it up and down, who's and hollers, droning speeches. The temperature starts rising. Harry Truman has his family in tow. He's busy campaigning for his friend Jimmy Burns, trying to convince delegates. When he gets grabbed, Senator Truman, you have to come to a meeting. It's with Bob Hannigan. Hannigan, chair of the DNC, what does he want to meet with me for? Maybe it's about my speech for Burns. He leaves the convention floor and goes to a hotel. 
The room there is packed. Hannigan is flustered. His shirt is soaking wet. He's been on the phone. He's been working delegates all day. The discussion came around to the vice presidency of the United States. But Truman shocked. My God, he says, I'm happy with what I'm doing. Hannigan asks him to sit down, sit down on the bed next to me, grabs the phone and calls the president of the United States. FDR's voice is so loud that Truman can hear it through the receiver. Have you got that fellow lined up yet? No, Hannigan says. He's the contrariest mule from Missouri that I have ever dealt with. And FDR responds. Tell the senator if he wants to break up the party in the middle of a war, it's his responsibility. It would be revealed later that that entire conversation was rehearsed. And then he grabs the receiver, and now he's on the phone with the president directly. And others in the room can hear the conversation, and he says, Mr. President, I'm happy with what I'm doing. Yes, I know you're the commander-in-chief. Yes, yes, sir, I always take orders from the commander-in-chief. And then those fatal words that have changed history. Okay, sir, I'll do it. So it was Truman now. He was an official candidate for the nomination. He turns to the people in the room, and this is kind of the way Truman was. He's like, I have just told the president that I am going to be a vice presidential candidate. Please make sure it happens. It's Truman. So late in the game, though, that while the others are upset, Burns is going to be extremely upset and feels betrayed by what happened. Nobody stopped working for FDR right up to the point of his nomination. And so there you have it, right? This is the story of how the party kind of came in and took the nomination away. Except it's not over yet. Yeah, it came as a shock to me that I might be wearing a book. Well... At least wearing something that's made of the same material. <laughs> Talking about Mac Weldon, our sponsor, when it comes to clothes, I think it's easy to forget that what you're wearing underneath is just as important as what you are wearing on the surface. We sometimes forget, we focus on the jacket we're wearing, the jeans, and you put your money there. And then when it comes to underwear, undershirts, socks, things like that, we go cheap. We go with cheap materials. Don't do that to yourself. Be comfortable. Have clothes that support you. Put more investment in clothes that are going to last a while. Not cheap stuff that's going to make you feel terrible. Mack Weldon is a company that puts the same attention into underwear, undershirts, socks that other designers do with the rest of their wardrobe. So, www.mackweldon.com Visit them, use promo code HISTORY, get 20% off your first order. Now, Mack Weldon also makes polos, and I bought their Vesper polo. I was just wearing it, you know, I was taking a little nap after a hard day of reading books and writing, and the place that I was renting had the air conditioner blowing right on me. Now, podcasters hate air conditioners because, first of all, they make a lot of noise, but put that aside. <laughs> An air conditioner blowing on you like that, you know, it's just a lot of moisture and got to tell you, nine times out of ten, you're going to end up getting sick or getting a cold because of the moisture. 
But I had on my Vesper polo from Mack Weldon, which has fabric in it that's throwing away moisture and at the same time absorbing more too. And I looked up what it was made of. That means they comb out impurities. Another 47% is modal. It's made from the fibers of beech tree. Beech trees are also used for books. And in fact, the word book is derivative in Old English from the word beech. They extract this pulp, spin it into a fiber, and it is very absorbent. Also doesn't bleed, so you don't have to worry about colors coming out in the wash. And it's just a particular fiber that is both breathable and absorbent at the same time. Consider Mack Weldon. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like the first item you order, you can keep it. Or you can exchange it. They'll refund or exchange you, no questions asked. Go to Mack Weldon today, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, and get 20% off using the promo code HISTORY, just the word HISTORY. We talked about that crowded convention hall. Ed Pauly is on the floor of the convention while Bob Hannigan is busy working delegates from the hotel room. Pauly's noticing something. The hall starts getting really, really crowded as they prepare to nominate the vice president. This is after FDR makes his radio speech and is nominated and thanks the delegates. It seems wholly likely that within the next four years, our armed forces and those of our allies will have gained a complete victory over Germany and Japan. Henry Wallace's people had printed counterfeit tickets and printed up and gave them out. And people started entering the convention hall and all the people at the door could see is that they had tickets and it wasn't clear at first what was going on. So you had this kind of like very low tech system of these bots invading the convention for Henry Wallace. So as names are are put out from the floor, the cheers are all his. Every time Wallace's name is mentioned, Enormous cheers erupt, and every time a state casts votes for Wallace, and Wallace is indeed leading, he's the front runner. Again, the press came out and said he's the only one that's got a statement from FDR. The cheers come out. They are cheering for him. In a convention, you can create a lot of noise if you have if you're organized and you have people in various state delegations, and they're cheering for Wallace, Wallace. Success in a convention begets success. There are a lot of uncommitted delegates. There are also states who have favorite sons. And very often those favorite sons know that they're not going to win the nomination, but they're holding out. But if you build up enough momentum in the convention, you can get some of the favorite sons and uncommitted delegates who want to be with the winner to side with you and start a stampede. And it's not so crazy that that could happen in 1940. That's what exactly had happened in the Republican National Convention and the reason that Wendell Wilkie got the nomination. We want Wallace. We want Wallace. Throughout the hall, no one is even talking about Truman. As Pauly tells it, they had a second ballot strategy. They weren't going to beat Wallace on the first ballot. But now with the cheering and the momentum in the room, 
you get to the state of Iowa, Wallace's home state. And the silver-haired tall vice president is standing along with his Iowans. And the organ starts playing. There are Wallace supporters planted all over. They know what's going on. The entire hall starts singing. Iway, Iway, that's where the tall corn grows. And I had advantage of this real simple chorus. Iway, Iway, that's where the tall corn grows. And it didn't matter if you were a labor leader from Arkansas or from Iowa or from New Jersey. You could just sing this catchy tune, which, by the way, you were prepared in advance for. It's an obvious moment that perhaps you could literally sing this person into the vice presidency and, as we know in history, later the presidency. Demonstrations in a convention can last for an awfully long time, and no one's going to hear that chairman's gavel bang in a good demonstration with a popular candidate. It's not going to calm down. The Truman Convention effort is now sputtering, despite FDR's official okay, it would seem, despite the party apparatus, the support of the bigwigs. The convention delegates keep singing. Finally, Paulie says to his assistant, Neil Roach, Listen, you see that twerp up there playing the organ? He's a Patrillo man. It's the head of the musicians' union. And he's naturally for Henry Wallace. But he has no business taking our show over. And he points to an axe that's up above the organ now. <laughs> that's a fire axe that's there. Go up there. Get that axe and chop every goddamn cable there is. Every one. That's the only thing that will stop him. We're going to call off the convention tonight. I don't want that music playing. And so while the delegates are still singing, they reach a point where the organ stops. And then eventually the delegates stop singing too. Paulie says, Roche did what I told him to do. He ran up there, got the axe, and he told the guy, listen. I've been instructed to chop all the cables unless you stop this music. So the guy stopped it. It was one of the dramatic things of the convention. That's the way Wilkie won his Republican nomination, because he had the crowd and he had the physical facility. Having control of the physical facility of the convention is very important. And that night we didn't have it. Finally, Ed Pauley and the others get a hold of Ed Kelly, the mayor of Chicago. And he gets a hold of the fire commissioner and the fire chief says, by authority of the mayor of city of Chicago, we herewith declare the hall to be vacated immediately. Now, of course, this is a bit hypocritical. Polly sensing that there were too many Wallace delegates in the hall, which there certainly were and might have been a violation of some fire rules was getting more of his people in up until the point that they shut the convention down. So there's no doubt that the convention ended more because of politics and not fire safety. The story's not exactly over because they do take a break that night, and then the next day the VP contest starts up again. And Henry Wallace does indeed win the first ballot, even without all the phony delegates who have been kept out now. He wins at 429 to 314 for Truman. But he needs 580 in order to win the nomination. There are 15 other candidates running. 
The DNC's choice, though, had not owned the first ballot. And there was going to have to be a second vote. And even on the second vote, no one knows how it's going to go. Uh, Truman is out there with a hamburger and a Coca-Cola in his hand, talking to delegates, eating his hamburger, when it turns out that Maryland switches its vote from its favorite son governor to Truman, and this starts a cascade. And it gets so bad that eventually even Henry Wallace agrees that Iowa's votes in the, almost the entire convention, maybe 100 delegates for Wallace hold out, should go to Truman. The chairman says, will the next vice president come up to the stage? Truman can't hear. He's busy eating a hamburger and finally says, golly, that's me. I think it's important to tell this uh, little history, and I think it's going to set up a great conversation that I'm going to have in the future, probably October, with uh, A.J. Bame, the historian and the author of The Accidental President about Truman. And we're going to talk more about his, uh, his presidency. This is going to set up a president of the United States. And no one, not even Truman himself, was aware that they were going to nominate him. Indeed, one of the things that's going to happen is Truman and FDR will have lunch at the White House after his nomination under a magnolia tree that was planted by Andrew Jackson. And the photographers take their picture. They're having sardines and they're having tea. And Truman notices that FDR can barely hold the teapot. And as he's pouring cream into his tea, he's getting more in the saucer than he is in the cup. We haven't lost these issues of 1944. For progressives, Wallace is a coulda been. And you just recently had Oliver Stone's documentary, The Secret History of the United States. Maybe we could have had a different history, uh, certainly a different history of the Cold War, one way or the other with President Henry Wallace. Um better relations with the Soviets, less competition, no Cold War, a president who was emphasizing the common man. For conservatives, it's a thank God moment. Because Truman was hard-nosed with Stalin at the right time. It was Stalin we were dealing with, not a bunch of idealist Russians. A lot of people, even then, even while the war is going on, the Soviet Union is our ally. They're noticing how much of a dictator... Stalin is, and they're hearing some of the comments that Henry Wallace is saying, praising people. Some of these people would turn out to be the head of the gulag that he's praising as a as a great person. And it is known that later on, he's going to have his own troubles with Truman as one of his cabinet secretaries. Wallace is going to be fired from the administration. He's going to run against him in 48. We have evidence now There's that he sought out help from the Soviets in arguing points within the Truman administration. Not anything like spy or anything to that level, but uh, is there ways you can help out as I'm trying to make the case within the Truman administration, not to fear you guys. Um, Who knows? Or he could have been a great president. But you see these intra-party issues. Does a party have a right to make a choice or should it be opened up to all the party members? You certainly have this question raised with the Democratic primary in 2016, people going as far as to say the primary was rigged, 
President Trump trying to be unhelpful, of course, for his Democratic opponents saying, oh, Bernie was screwed over. The primary was rigged. Uh, many Sanders supporters saying that the primary was rigged. And what we do know from emails that were leaked is that members of the Democratic National Committee preferred Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders. Primaries were run. The caucuses were run by the states that they're in. They're run according to the rules set up beforehand. I mean, there's there's nothing you know rigged about that. But that the party mechanism itself favored Clinton and the, and the presence of superdelegates are seen as, as, as elitist. I mean, how can a group of people have more votes than the actual Democratic primary voters? We still have these debates. You know, and on the other hand, the DNC establishment, if you will, will argue back. We have a right to defend ourselves. In fact, we got an election coming up against Republicans and we've got to beat them. We need the best candidate to do it. We also get worried that if there are, say, open primaries, we'll have Republican voters coming in to select the weakest candidate so the easiest to beat in November. And there's that balance between cigar smoke-filled rooms making a decision and the decision just thrown out to the primary electorate. Now, it might seem very different than today because we're talking about 1944. That's Franklin Roosevelt, one of the most popular politicians in America ever, right? I mean, they had no chance of losing the election. Well, I'd make two quick points on that. I think in ways it's very similar because the Democratic Party of the 1940s, if no establishment had been established, was in a very weak spot. Sure, Franklin Roosevelt won big in 1932, but prior to that, you had two Democratic presidents since the time of the Civil War. That's it. I mean, three presidencies, because Grover Cleveland got two different ones, but two men as president. The entire 20s belonged to the Republicans. And while Woodrow Wilson had his presidency, the Republicans controlled Congress during a few of those years and were able to stymie his legacy. So it's a very powerful Republican Party during those times. And sure, after the Great Depression and Hoover, they were crushed. Opposition to Roosevelt was building. The third term was unpopular. It was probably unlikely he'd be defeated during a war. In every year since the 1936 election in 1940 and 1944, the Democrats lost more states. Starting in the Midwest. What did we gain out of all the martini and manipulation? Well, it's interesting. It's possible that if FDR didn't get involved or said nothing at all, you might have had Jimmy Burns as president, and you would have had a segregationist president um, at that time. Or it's possible he would have changed his ways if he wasn't running just in South Carolina, and he had been a very functional, he had been very highly functional on the war effort. You're possibly saved from having Wallace finish out the war and be a little too kind with the Soviets at a time when they were pushing boundaries. And putting Truman in there ensured that you were going to get a little more resistance. FDR didn't really know Truman. He couldn't have known what he was deciding. My view of it is, is that I believe FDR proceeded, like a lot of people would, that they're going to stay alive. That even though if they have health problems, they're going to live and finish out the term. And so this was a minor choice to him. He was not thinking about picking the next president of the United States. But in his actions, whether he knew it or not, he kind of prevented on both fronts, maybe, 
not getting someone to left, not getting someone to right, installing a president inadvertently who would end up desegregating the army and pushing for national health insurance, but also standing up to the Soviets. But we've never lost those questions. You know, how much do we consult it? Does the democracy, does the crowd always make the right decision? And we've decided as a people that for general elections, for elections about an office where a person's going to have the public trust, perhaps control of public funds, that that office must be decided by an election, by the democracy. When it comes to parties who are not having elections for a particular office, but merely having elections for who will be their nominee, this is quite a different question, and it's not as easy to answer. We could simply answer that it should always be democracy. It should just be whoever wins the most votes gets it. Uh, Whoever wins all the primaries and all the caucuses gets it. And the DNC should function only as a referee in this context, completely unbiased. And might be more of a way to go uh, in the future. I think it's pretty obvious that it's something that a lot of people are calling for, and that if both parties don't take steps in that direction, there's going to be trouble. On the other hand, I would consider two things. You can't get rid of your establishment. When you do, you're just setting up a new one. Uh, For instance, historically, if Henry Wallace had won the election, you can be very sure that he would be setting up a labor and progressive establishment. He might be kicking out people like Pauley and Flynn and Hannigan and them, but he'd be setting up a different establishment. You have this group of politicians, people who have run for office, people who have worked very hard uh, for years and years and years for one particular political party. Does a party have a right to give them more voice? than others? This is that superdelegate question. If they don't, they will be on the ballot. So grassroots people will be running against longtime established state senators, longtime established uh, U.S. senators. Uh, so they'll be running against uh, congressmen, governors for delegate positions. Right now, they're out of the process because they, bec- at least on the DNC side, because you have the superdelegate system. It's a question. I mean, Does history matter? Does your experience, does the amount of time that you've put into a party matter at all? And I don't have an answer for that. Uh, It's not a question that's going to go away. I think in the Truman-Wallace story, I saw that issue manifested. And uh, I think as events move on, particularly in the Democratic Party, where this is more of a live issue, it's going to be interesting to see how things go. I want to thank you for listening. Please remember our sponsor, Mac Weldon. And the premium podcast is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Consider signing up. It can be as little as $2 a month. Help support the show. And also, you'll get bonus episodes. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.